0: Welcome to The Pick List, the podcast for curious food industry minds. Every week, we bring you our pick of articles from the world of food and grocery retail and explore what they tell us about how our food industry is changing in these extraordinary times
1: we chat about the major news from nationals and big trade titles but we also love unearthing gems from niche publications and sharing brilliant
0: quirky food stories that change the way we think about the food we eat and produce i'm julia glotz and i'm laura ryan it's great to have you with us let's start the show Hi Julia, it's episode 27
1: of The picklist, the penultimate show before our Christmas break and the penultimate show before the end of season two. How has your week been? No pressure.
0: <laughs> no pressure indeed, that's de- definitely what I took to heart this week. Um, I actually took a little bit of time off. Uh, we were supposed to go on a mini break to Scotland, which sadly didn't happen uh, because of various lockdown restrictions, but I decided to take the time off anyway, which is much much needed um and yeah I know it's close to Christmas but uh but still I needed that break so fully recharged and and refreshed and uh ready to see out season two what have you been up to a whole two days off you've taken so <laughs> But it's very important for huge consultants to,
1: to, yeah, huge break for you to take a tiny bit of time off. Uh, for me, I'm still working on my strategic marketing project, which I'm really excited about for one of the uh, processes in the food industry. So I've got another week to go on that, and uh, I'm absolutely loving it. Uh, tell me about the show this week. We've got a fantastic guest, and I had to really
0: curb my enthusiasm, didn't I? Yet to. I had to keep myself calm. (laughs) Yeah, I think you're doing a right job. I mean, you were fangirling quite hard. Yes, we're joined by Brian Roberts uh, of Shopping List fame. Uh, We discussed uh, some of the fantastic articles and blog posts that Brian's produced on the show before. But Brian is a retail analyst, super experienced retail analyst, who uh, has been working on the Tesco shop floor during the pandemic. So he brings a fascinating mixture of insights to all things grocery. He's also just launched uh, a new consultancy business called shopfloorinsights.co.uk. And yeah, he brought some fantastic articles uh, for us to discuss. Should we start the show? Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us.
2: A real pleasure to be with you.
0: Why didn't you briefly introduce yourself and tell our listeners who you are and how you're connected to food and grocery retail?
2: Yep, so my name's uh, Brian Roberts, and for over 20 years, I've been a retail analyst. So I've worked with various market research organisations like Cantar and Mintel. I then had a spell um, with a shopper loyalty company. Um, yep, yeah, sadly, I left them in January this year and in March when um, COVID kicked off, I uh, made the slightly strange decision to apply for a job with Tesco and since then I have been working in a nearby Tesco superstore and still really enjoying my time there. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much me. So uh, an interesting change from a kind of rarefied pontificating about uh, supermarkets to actually working in one, which has been a, an incredible learning curve and a very enjoyable experience.
0: I can imagine, and we're really looking forward to quizzing you on on some of the things you have learned. We should also say you have just uh, started a new business as well. Tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, so I've um, alongside working in, in in store, I've also been conducting some sort of freelance projects for a variety of different um, clients, such as FMCG, ad agencies, um, and retailers. Um, so I thought I'd give it give it a try in terms of trying to make it um. Of sustainable business See, I've launched um, a company called Shopfloor Insights. And uh, the website went live today. And yeah, fingers crossed.
0: Brilliant. And we will link to the website in the show notes as well. So listeners who are interested uh, can check that out. Now, let's start with your articles. Tell us all about your first pick for us.
2: Yeah, so this is um, an article from the, the, the BBC website uh, about Asda um, joining Tesco. Um, in terms of repaying it's, it, it, the business rates relief that it's uh, received during the pandemic. Um, I could have taken it from a number of different sources, but um, yeah, I mean, it's been a, an interesting story to follow. Um, and I do have a problem really with kind of the general narrative about supermarkets have done incredibly well out of the pandemic and it was totally the right thing to do to repay this business rights relief which you know for tesco was 700 odd million you know i think we're over 2 billion now in terms of all of the retailers who've pledged to, to, to repay it so yeah i get one part of that narrative which is yeah, sales have um risen significantly for all of the food retailers um you know partly because so-called non-essential retailers have been closed uh, but also primarily because consumption has shifted from you know a lot of out-of-home consumption has then obviously transferred into in- in-home consumption which has benefited um, the supermarket so yeah on one level yeah sales are, sales are up a uh, really big boom and yeah happy days on that level but I think what hasn't really been fully addressed in the narrative is just the sheer level of cost And disruption that all of the supermarkets have gone through, Uh, most notably those who've got an e-commerce offering as well. Because it's not just the kind of tangible physical costs, you know, so things like perspex screens, um, you know, hand sanitizer, trolley spray, um, floor graphics, traffic lights. It's also the huge disruption that you know the the workforce is seen as well. So. You know, a number of store managers I've spoken to at its peak were running around 30 to 35% absentees due to self-isolating or people being sick with COVID. Um, Huge amount of investment as well going into online. So at my induction, for example, which was in the Watford Extra, um, most of the people in the room were going to become dot-com pickers or dot-com drivers. And then there's also been the additional cost of retrofitting um, in-store picking into a large number of stores that have had in-store picking removed a number of years ago when dark stores first came on stream. So I think the costs of COVID have far outstripped business rates relief, and I think it's very. I think it probably is the right thing to do um, for the supermarkets to pay it back because, arguably, most of them can afford it, and it's um, but. I think it does set a worrying precedent and also I think it just the narrative hasn't been pitched right in terms of you know it's the supermarkets generally tend to be public enemy number one anyway um but I think they've got a bit, bit of a bad press and also a bit of a misunderstanding about just how great the pandemic has been for them because the the the, 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 the additional costs and complexity that's gone into the business far outstrips any sort of government um you know assistance through business rates relief. Really
0: and it's been so fascinating to see uh, just how the other supermarkets have been pressured in interacting um by Tesco on this as you say i think there's an interesting story to be told around um the the rates relief why it was necessary or perhaps why it wasn't necessary and um, whether it's justified to repay it and then there's a sort of separate um I think story here around the dynamics within grocery retail and between the different retailers and what happens when you have a business like Tesco turn around and go, you know what, 600 million pounds or say, so, um, it's fine, we're paying it back. And now everyone else is on the back foot. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a, from a PR um, and sort of comms perspective, I think it's, it's quite a, it's a bold move, isn't it? Um, if you're thinking about new CEO as well. Um Going into that Christmas period, Brexit um, uncertainty still looming to, to in that climate, I think, to turn around and say, no, actually, we're going to do this. I think uh, that sets the tone as well, doesn't it, within that competitive set?
2: Yeah, I think it was a very courageous move. And I think from a PR point of view, to be the first mover on it was, was a, a, a masterstroke. So, um, you know, fair, fair play to Tesco on that and fair play to all of the other retailers who, who followed suit because, you know, on one level, I think, you know, they didn't ask for business rates relief. It just happened to to retail in general. Um, And it does set a dangerous precedent in terms of, you know, going against kind of the legal or financial system that you find yourself in. Yes, um, it's been an interesting one to watch. And I think in terms of reputation management, um, you know, fair play to the supermarkets, but they might regret this decision in years to come.
1: I think it's really interesting as well, you mentioned there, Brian, about the supermarkets being public enemy number one on occasions because they very much are, and I think... um Uh, consumers generally probably haven't even got the idea of the tip of the iceberg of the cost as you say uh, floor graphics extra staff perspex screens all this stuff that just magically happened pretty much instantaneously they don't really think of the the cost of that maybe and um, we I guess hear more and more about isn't it great that producers have done a fantastic job in the supply chain but I still don't know how much more goodwill these big corporates have when they've done an amazing job and I'm intrigued to know from you working on the front line now from colleagues are, are they saying anything about oh it feels different and people are more grateful because you know we're st- stacking shelves and we can feed our families or is it still you know you tesco so we should be and it's a corporate faceless organization do you think that that, that paradigm has shifted at all
2: um i think the there was a level of warmth towards supermarkets um you know during during the pandemic and i think you know we have Probably some examples of totally voluntary positive feedback from, from customers, which I think um, is, is unusual. But you know, th- there was a genuine amount of kind of respect and gratitude being expressed from the public. And that's what kind of bothered me a little bit about the coverage of the business rates issue is that, that some publications were saying there's a, this huge public anger and public backlash against business rates relief. And I don't actually think that was true. I don't, I don't believe that. A significant proportion of shoppers were actually aware of it or cared much about it so this public anger i think was actually journalist anger um and that's kind of you know forced the supermarkets into a corner to some extent so um that's always intrigued me that you know the, the the supermarkets have generally had a bad rap over the years because they're mean to farmers and they're mean to suppliers and, and they're you know they're not great employers all this type of like kind of cliched stuff and i think you know all of them have pretty much raised their game when it comes to supplier interactions and you know you see from tesco for example their scorecarding from suppliers continues to improve year after year and there's a lot more collaboration i think with you know between the big retailers and suppliers still some necessary adversarial conversations i'm sure when it comes to uh, nego- negotiating around price and there's obviously some you know some quite well high profile spats between tesco and suppliers when they introduced their Aldi price matching um, earlier this year um, but I think that you know, there is a public fascination with retail because it's the part of the economy with which you have the most kind of personal interaction uh, and that, you know, that applies for all retail whereas you know, if you ask members of the public who Diageo is or who Unilever is they might have some sort of faint idea but ask them who Tesco or Lidl or Sainsbury's are and, and you, you, you know the, the people are very knowledgeable and very opinionated so um, no, it's just, you know, it's just been interesting that the supermarkets were hailed as key workers and have done a brilliant job, you know, feed the nation and all this type of stuff. And then the moods turned slightly, I think largely led by journalists more than anyone else um, in terms of the business rates relief. So I think um, it's kind of good in a way that by paying it all back, then perhaps they might have a
0: yeah.
2: clean bill of health in, in reputational terms.
0: Julia, what's your first pick this week? So my first pick this week is from Retail Detail, and it's an article titled «Craft Heinz to deliver meals all over Europe». This is a story that was first reported by the Dutch business newspaper FD, but which has since been picked up and translated by a few English-speaking publications as well. Uh, We'll link to both versions in the show notes. Um, This is about Kraft Heinz getting into meal delivery on the continent through its Honig brand. And what the um, article is reporting is that Kraft Heinz ran a trial during the first lockdown in the Netherlands where they delivered fresh ready meals through a direct-to-consumer model in partnership with Compass Group. And that trial proved so successful that they're now expanding it to Germany, France, Italy and Spain. There isn't much information in the article about the meals that are being delivered but I had a look at the Honig website armed with Google Translate and it seems to be a range that is quite similar to a brand like Knorr or Maggie perhaps, so soup and sauce packet mixes, some dried pasta, other ambient cooking ingredients. Um, And I also had a look at some articles from earlier in the year when they first announced the trial in the Netherlands, um, and they seemed to suggest that the way these meals were being positioned was sort of healthy, tasty, convenient meals for families. Um, And some of the sample dishes that they talked about were things like spinach pasta with mushrooms or uh, noodles with prawns and a teriyaki sauce. Um, the pricing that was reported at the time, uh, so this is uh, from, from the first lockdown trial, was about €18.70 for three to four people, which works at about €4.70 per person, which I didn't think was massively compelling um, as, a, as a price proposition, just looking at it from a UK perspective. But the reason this caught my eye is because Heinz has obviously been one of those big multinationals that have really jumped onto the direct-to-consumer trend during the pandemic. They launched Heinz at Home Here, which allowed consumers to order bundles of their favourite Heinz products. That service has recently been expanded to Ireland as well. Um, And it's clearly just one aspect of D2C that Heinz are experimenting with. And the second reason I thought this was particularly interesting is because meal delivery is obviously a booming area. We've talked about it quite a lot on the show here, uh, particularly around recipe boxes. Um, Quite a few FMCG giants are sniffing around that area. We talked about the recent acquisition of Mindful Chef by Nestle, which obviously speaks to that same trend. So I'm interested in seeing that a brand like Honig, which to the casual observer looks like a fairly traditional ambient brand that they are looking to play in this area and that they're using partnerships in this case with a delivery platform and with Compass Group to do that. And it did make me think whether this was a potentially quite powerful way to reposition a brand that's perhaps perceived as a little bit old fashioned, as a lot of these, these brands in Ambient can be, and reposition it around health and freshness in a way that you're not going to be able to do if you're just a sauce packet sitting in the Ambient aisle of the supermarket. Because I think through that meals delivery platform and bringing your ingredients to life in combination with other fresh ingredients, I suppose, is a way for consumers uh, to experience your your brand in, in a different way and for that brand to then tap trends around freshness and health that they wouldn't be able to do just through their normal product portfolio. So I'll be watching this trial with, uh, with great interest um, and also seeing if we're going to see um, similar things um, sort of being trialed here as well. You do wonder whether a, a brand owner like Premier, for instance, probably has some brands in its portfolio that would sort of be on a par with, uh, with what that Honig brand um, is doing. Brian, what did you make of it, and could you see something like this work in UK in the UK?
2: Yeah, I mean, I've always been a bit cynical about the whole, you know, the direct to consumer, you know the meal kits and recipe kits and so on, because I think, you know, if it wasn't for the pandemic, I think uh, their growth would have been modest rather than exponential. You know, so we're we'll obviously seeing the likes of Gusto and all those those types of guys. Um, yeah, really seeing tremendous growth, um, HelloFresh and so on. So I kind of think the pandemic's been very, very helpful for things like recipe boxes and meal kits and direct to consumer. like all things home delivery and e-commerce, my big question will be what happens when everyone goes back to work for at least three, four days a week? Because e-commerce and home delivery are great when everyone's sat at home. Um, when you start commuting or going out in the evenings then it all becomes a bit more problematic so um, but yeah again I think people will have discovered meal kits and recipe kits um, for the first time perhaps during the pandemic and might yeah I know certainly some of my friends and colleagues have really found the experience very very positive so I think like a lot of pandemic behaviors there might be some stickiness we might start seeing um, some of these initiatives have had longer term legs and yeah I think you're right you now there could be people like premier foods or you know, lots of the other big multi-category FMCGs who might be looking at this development in Europe and thinking yeah you know that that could work um and I think yeah th- you know the whole direct consumer thing I think is incredibly tempting for uh, big branded manufacturers because it does get rid of the those nasty middlemen um, also known as the supermarket so it's um it's tempting, but I think, you know, it can be fraught with problems, but this sounds like it's been pretty successful. So, you know, there isn't any real reason why it couldn't become a, you know, a long-term opportunity, both for Kraft Heinz and other big FMCGs. And you know, equally things like pet food as well, I think is, you know, we're seeing a lot of action in that area in terms of health, more healthy and you know, health and wellness related pet food and um, being a you know, direct to consumer as well. So there's certainly, um you know, one of the beneficiaries of, of the pandemic has been um, e-commerce in general, but also yeah, this, you know, meal kits, recipe kits and stuff. So I think um, yeah, this is just one more manifestation of the, the fact that you know it's it a very, very good time or it's a very good environment for that type of operation at the moment. But again, my big question will be what happens when we get back to some sense of uh, normality next year?
1: And have you been surprised, Brian, um, by the uh, lack of pace by some of the retailers to get into meal kits? Because I know there's been trials, and Morrison's. Are, I know they announced uh, that you know there's going to be a Christmas dinner in a box kit, and they've had so many kits over the pandemic, and and that sort of thing. But um, you know the, the these. Uh, the gustos, the freshes of this world are saying, right, we're gunning for the retailers. And I know they're still only small, and as you say, the, the, the catalyst has been the pandemic, otherwise it probably would have had a lot lot slower growth. Do you think the retailers must be looking at this and thinking, we we need to be sharper on putting something together in a box to I guess to be more sustainable, to tick all those boxes, less waste, all that sort of stuff? Or do you think no, let's just stick to the knitting and stay at what we're good at and, and offer good range in store and, and have a good online offering?
2: Yeah, I think it's, um. I mean, I've lost count of the number of times that British supermarkets have tried this. I remember Tesco had a trial a few years ago where, you know, you had recipe boxes um, in their stores, which kind of is a little bit pointless because it removes one of the key benefits of recipe boxes, which is they arrive at your house. So um, also I think another problem with recipe kits in general is the the odds of there being something in there you don't like or are intolerant to if they don't have any flexibility in terms of the ingredients then that can be problematic as well um it was interesting for me i visited quite a few stores in the netherlands last year and um two of them i think it was plus and humble my really good Dutch accent there, Jumbo, as I probably more normally call them, Um, they had kind of quite, they seem to be having quite success with kind of like soup kits or, you know, really boxed up ingredients that you then supplement with protein. Um, So I think that kind of solution does kind of work. Uh, But yeah, I I definitely think that the supermarkets will be looking at things like HelloFresh and Gusto and thinking, you know, how do we do that? Um, perhaps as part of a broader online shop, because I think the economics of it might be challenging in terms of just selling those in isolation. But you mentioned Morrison's, and I think they played an absolute blinder. Um, in terms of these food boxes, you know, they've, they've been putting together for different seasonal events. You mentioned Christmas, I think there's stuff around Eid as well. Um, so that kind of occasion based um, marketing of, 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 of you know food boxes i think has been very very successful for morrison's and i think they're, they're almost certainly going to continue to innovate in that space but yeah i think um it's just a question of time before you know one of the big supermarkets has a real tilt at meal kits because it does somehow work um you know the, these these companies are although some of the big american um recipe box companies have fallen by the wayside or you know really failed to generate any sort of profitability So. It's not as easy as it looks, but yeah, I think you're right. Certainly, the likes of Tesco, Sainsbury's, as will be looking at this and thinking, "How do we do that um, online?" Because you know, it clearly, has gained a lot of traction over the past uh, eight or nine months.
1: Laura, what's your first pick for us? My first pick this week is from Produce Business UK, and its Waitrose Food and Drink Report unveils unique trends amongst shoppers due to COVID, um, and. I, I'm mad for John Lewis and I don't hide it very well on the uh, on pick list and uh, it's the eagerly awaited annual trend report that uh has put out each year in terms of what, what's happening in terms of our our eating uh, and, and drinking trends and unsurprisingly as a headline alludes to um, Covid has has changed that quite um quite a lot and the, the headline within the article talks about um, the, the key stat: twenty-five percent of shoppers, mainly under tw- uh, thirty-five, have turned to online groceries for the first time, which is absolutely phenomenal. And sixty percent of them are saying they're going to stick to digital platforms. And you just think, wow, what an absolute shift—a quarter, twenty-five percent—a quarter shift into online that, that that weren't before. And and we've seen that in the in the overall Kantar uh, stats. The report um, highlights 10 key areas of change and there was a couple that I really wanted to, to pick through and chat about. And the first one is cooking being the new commute which uh, I really enjoyed mainly because it's not in my household once I've finished on, on zoom for the day I'm not thinking oh let's chill out and make a nice three-course dinner I'm like raiding the fridge because I'm starving so it made me feel quite nice that there's people out there that are wanting to relax over uh, the, over the uh, oven or the, the hob on an evening and it's quite a lot of people in fact 74% of people saying that cooking provides that break between working from home and then relaxing at home as well and it providing this commute environment which is which is really interesting. The report also states that meal planning is on the up um, and I guess because the challenge of availability at the beginning of the year through the first lockdown people had to be more organized and it was just you know luxury before you could throw anything you wanted in your trolley and maybe you weren't shopping on the frequency that you were before so 53% of people are saying that they're planning more Um, and also social media is playing a bigger role and we've touched on this a few times in the pick list over the last few weeks but there's been a 25 percent it's 25 percent increase in food mentions on instagram which is really interesting as well and we spoke um about tiktok recently too and i have to say i have now joined tiktok still don't know what i'm doing but uh, <laughs> following a couple of food accounts to see that actually consumers are wanting more and more inspiration and we're sat on our phones and and, and cooking more as, as well as a as an aside. One of the next things a report talks about is food waste and I guess that goes in hand in hand with the meal planning and 91% particularly of the over 55s are more conscious about food waste and Seeing more and more of um, both suppliers and retailers talk about um, net zero and carbon usage and this whole waste is is huge. So I guess consumers playing a more active role because we know so much food's wasted in the home, not just within the supply chain, I guess is a good thing. And then it would be remiss of me not to mention the future of British farming. (laughs) Julie would be disappointed if it wasn't this one I picked uh, because I was really intrigued by this, mainly because... Working for levy boards in the past, we would always talk about the importance of country of origin, but data always showed that actually country of origin is about number five or number six in terms of driving, purchasing, preference, it's value for money, it's price, it's, it's look and feel, it's the quality of the of the meat, not necessarily where it's come from. Uh, But I guess because there has been so much press around Brexit, um, the Waitrose report is talking about that 74% of people want to see more food businesses in the UK express their ongoing support for local British producers, and 61% are saying they're worrying that there'll be a rise in factory farm meat coming into the UK if standards are not uh, safeguarded and want this to be prioritised. And we've seen so much, haven't we, from the likes of the NFU in terms of safeguarding standards and... You know what potentially chlorinated chicken and hormone beef and all that sort of stuff could, could be imported and then the different uh, trade advisory groups have actually been set up can counter against that but what the Waitrose report is saying that consumers are concerned and as a result on Waitrose.com there's been a 450% increase on people searching for British beef which was a, a standout figure for me um there's so much to go in there and I printed a hard copy off because I'm such a retail geek I'm going to have a proper good read of it over the next week or so Brian what were your takeouts from the report and was there any surprises in there sorry the other surprise for me was we're not drinking as much alcohol at home we're all we're all ordering no alcohol booze which seems crazy but maybe that's the next meat free (laughs) what what did you think of the report
2: yeah, I mean, as as you've said, it's 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 one of the highlights of the year for um, us us geeks, isn't it? It's always full of um, fantastic in, insight and observation. But yeah, a lot of it does really does resonate with what I've been seeing in store as well in terms of people consolidating their shopping trips and you know meticulous levels of planning with you know menu planning, um, you know the, the renaissance of a shopping lists, one of my favorite topics. Um, and yeah, I think you know a lot of the the topics you mentioned so that kind of is a renewed appetite for localness i think and i think this is due to a number of factors i think um the fact that lots of retailers morrison's i think was the leading light here were very quick and nimble to repurpose the quality meat and seafood that was destined for hospitality and they repurposed that i think very very well um, in terms of giving shoppers the opportunities to support British fishermen and farmers and um, brexit is obviously you know on the back of everyone's minds and the very real possibility now that there will might be shortages of imported produce from from the continent I think it, it, it was interesting for me um, working in store to notice that you know one day the value new potatoes might be British the next day there might be Israeli there might be polish um, so it's certainly the value under the market I think that you know, the retailers are you know, have been happy to source globally to try and deliver the best value for shoppers. Um, but I think yeah, that 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 sense of localness and supporting British producers, I think, will only get more important next year um, on the back of Brexit as well. Also, because I think a lot of people realise it's the right thing to do too in terms of supporting the nation and supporting the local economy. Um, yeah, and I think yeah, the, the other sort of weight transferable observations. I think yeah, e-commerce definitely you know interesting for me is that if you look at data from kantar pre-covid um e-commerce was actually plateauing everyone who wanted to shop online was shopping online and everyone who didn't want to wasn't and it was kind of a little bit flat um obviously covid has changed that and there's been a huge number of new entrants from the shopper perspective into grocery e-commerce you know again what intrigues me is e-commerce Grocery e-commerce is is awesome when everyone's sat at home all week. It becomes less awesome when you're at work or you want to go out or you don't want to pay for the really expensive evening or weekend slots. The other interesting angle for me is no one makes any money from e-commerce. So what we saw pre-COVID was a lot of the retailers were kind of rowing back from it slightly. There was no active recruitment. From any of the big supermarkets to get new e commerce customers, apart with the exception of Ocado. Um, and, you know, other, you know, Sainsbury's, for example, removed its click and collect um, facility from my local store um, in the car park, and that returned during COVID. So um, I think quietly, a lot of the supermarkets will be hoping that lots of new e commerce customers go away um, and start return to in store shopping because that's where they actually make the money um and i'm you know I, I don't necessarily agree with waitrose's very strong assertion that lots of customers will continue to behave like this because yeah grocery e-commerce home delivery is essentially inconvenient um and you know there's a reason why it was plateauing before the pandemic so um a lot of people will i think just revert back to their normal behaviors and i think um' the super- a lot of supermarkets would be really quite chuffed if that does happen because they're not making much cash on this sort of sur- surge in um, home delivery because it's you know, it's just very very diluted when it comes to profitability
0: Brian tell us about your second article
2: yeah so this was um from the Guardian and it's regarding the opening uh this week of the world's first dedicated charging forecourt for electric vehicles um, so they opened in, on Monday in near Braintree uh, in Essex and it's um, operated by a company called GridServe who are already active in things like solar power generation um, and this was you know, uh, a concept that's been a long time coming and they, they anticipate they're going to open over a hundred of these locations um, around the UK. Um, and I think it's, that's interesting in its own right, as the government's recently brought forward the deadline for, the, the, to, for us to cease manufacturing petrol and diesel vehicles and, and hopefully move to um, <coughs> electric. And I think that obviously has big implications for the supply chain in general. Um, but equally interesting for me, or perhaps more interesting for me, is the retail proposition that was um, uh, along sat alongside this fork so i actually went to visit um that 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 location earlier on today um i think the guardian article had one error in it i don't know if that's since been connect, um, corrected but they were most insistent that the retail proposition included a, a boots which is um one letter out it actually includes uh, booths. so um as a southerner i've only been to i think two booth stores before i run in ilkley i think somewhere like that or Harrogate or somewhere nice Um, and one in Manchester but so this is their southernmost outpost if you like and um, the retail proposition was created by of all people WH Smith so GridServe said to WH Smith we'd like you to concoct a new retail proposition for us it's it's been described as the best of British so it includes um, yeah booths kind of food area and grocery area which for me is um, you know, it was very well executed, I mean, a fantastic range. Um, to me, I had an um, ECOVA, if that's how you pronounce it, refill station for detergent, which I thought was um, interesting to see that in such a small kind of environment. Um, I had a kind of standard um, WH Smith travel offer of news, snacks, confectionery, health and beauty. Um, a Costa copy, um, which is again done very, very nicely. Um, and also a gourmet freezer. Uh, but it's kind of like a um, cook, so um, those kind of upmarket up ready and uh, frozen ready meals. So overall, um, you know, while the whole electric vehicle stuff is quite interesting, obviously the direction of travel, no pun intended. Um, you know, this is among the better kind of roadside retail propositions I've seen in the UK. And I think it's, it's tremendously encouraging that you know, the much maligned WH Smith has um, created such a compelling retail proposition. And it's, I think it's, um, you know, there's, there's some great craft beers in there, for example. There was fresh meat and poultry. There was, you know, fresh, you know, there's, there's cheese. It's actually a really nice little environment. And upstairs was a play area for kids. There were some exercise bikes that helped power the charging stations outside, which I thought was quite nice. Yeah, so overall, I think, you know, in general, over my career, you'd think about four-court retailing as historically quite dreadful um, and focused around cigarettes and pornography largely, rather than any sort of compelling gourmet proposition. Um, but I think, you know, the likes of EG Group and the way that they've been developing their four courts, the, you know, the, the way that Little Waitrose and Sainsbury's and Tesco have all got involved. And um, I think, you no. Know, petrol station retailing or forecourt retailing has enjoyed a real renaissance and um, this is just a very very impressive um, example of what can be achieved if um, you bring together the right concepts
1: and I'm, I'm chuffed that you've been today it's so exciting and um, earlier in the week you posted um, uh, a piece on social media about the distance from preston hq booths down to the brain tree and as you say it's a significant distance it's over 200 miles isn't it i think you're there or thereabouts and as you said that translation bit because even for us in the northeast booths isn't actually that well-known name it's northwest and a bit into yorkshire so uh will 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 people understand it and i guess and then my other question for you was Gridserve. it feels very industrial and when you posted some photos of it on today it felt quite business parky rather than oh nice high-end grocery do you think is that an issue or do you think that's you know consumers will get that because they're charging the tesla outside (laughs) i mean it's
2: um i'm no branding expert but yeah i think you're right it does feel slightly utilitarian um in terms of the, the name and perhaps they could have chosen something a bit more fluffy and um kind of emotional if you like but um you know i think that that's kind of what makes the retail proposition all the more important is because people aren't going to be spending i think a minimum of 20 minutes with nothing better to do than go shopping or have a coffee or you know use an exercise bike um so i think yeah that, that's what that's why it makes it very important that the retail proposition is, is really of the suitable caliber and i think that what WA smith has achieved by bringing these brands together is is oh there's also a post office which i forgot to mention um yeah, so it's a slightly odd name, but I think, you know, it's a very handsome piece of architecture. It's very well-executed retail proposition. The, the Costa was doing decent business when I was in there. Um, and it's, you know, the the, the the actual booth range, I think, is very well curated. As I mentioned, there's craft beers, there's wines, there's kind of seasonal gifting. Um, so fingers crossed, it should, it should do pretty well. It's nice to come across a new retail concept in the UK, that is, you know, genuinely impressive, I think, particularly in this current environment where a lot of the big supermarkets are closing food counters, for example, and, you know, not, it seems to be, as an industry at the moment, it's kind of a race to the middle, Um, rather than striving for excellence, they're kind of striving for adequacy, which isn't, you know, isn't really, for me, a great place to be. And so it's nice when there's a new concept, which actually you know, makes puts a smile on your face and makes you happy because you know buying food and drink could and should be an enjoyable experience
0: Julia what's your second pick this week So my second pick this week is from The Times, and arguably it's about a company that I think has probably embraced the swimming upstream ethos uh, that that Brian was talking about there uh, to to one extent or another. Um, The article is titled, Harrods Boss Michael Ward Says It'll Take Us Years to Rebuild. This is, as the headline suggests, an interview with Harrods Managing Director Michael Ward. And it's about how the store and the brand has coped with the pandemic and what is next. And we featured an article about Harrods and COVID back in June, episode eight, which seems like a lifetime ago. So I thought this was a good opportunity to revisit Harrods and look at where things are at right now. The interview is being conducted right after the end of lockdown 2.0. So, a lot of it is about Harrod's reopening, um, of course, and um, sort of discussing where it goes from here. But it's also about Michael Ward himself and his background. It's quite interesting uh, background, especially um, in the context of, of Harrods and what one might perhaps stereotypically expect to find in the uh, Harrods uh, executive team. So, Michael Ward um, attended a comprehensive near Hull, studied at Bradford Uni, started his career at Anson Young PwC, then moved into FMCG and retail with some stints at Bassett, Bulmer's, Lloyd's Pharmacy. Um, He was also at uh, Apex, the private equity firm, for a while where he was involved in the Summerfield buyout in 2005. So a varied career. Now he's at Harrods and in the world of luxury retail. And there's a really great quote by a former colleague of his in the article that says, In the world of luxury department stores, Michael is a sort of antichrist figure. He's very straight talking and that can ruffle some feathers, but people respect his business acumen um and that business acumen is uh he is certainly going to need because harrods uh, like so many big retail brands on the high street at the moment faces some significant challenges and the central question that they're sort of having to grapple with is What do you do when you have built a business that is all about appealing to a global elite, the global 0.1%, as the article puts it, and now those people can't travel, or certainly they cannot travel as much. So what do you do? Um, And Harrods, as it turns out, is doing quite a bit. Um, On the one hand, it's uh, opened up um, an outlet shop to shift stock left over during the first lockdown. In September, it opened H Beauty, which is a standalone beauty store in Essex. So also sort of opening up beyond that traditional London luxury customer in the process. And it's about to open The Residence in Shanghai, which is an invitation only personal shopping store, essentially. Um, Still, Ward uh, was forecasting sales would be down by 45% uh, earlier this year and the article ends with him still striking a very cautious note about what is next. Uh, He says, The return of tourists will depend on how we get through the vaccination process and how the government approaches quarantines. And I think we'll start to build back in the summer, which uh, in, in early December sounds like a very long time to go still until we're really talking about sort of rebuilding and uh, re-energizing those businesses. But I thought it was particularly interesting to see how they were attempting to compensate for some of the travel restrictions and to also broaden that sort of traditional Harrods proposition, experimenting with some new, uh, some new formats as well. Brian, what did you make of it? Did you spend quite a bit of time looking at Harrods? Is it a store that you think acts as inspiration for for some of the other um, retailers, particularly in the food hall, or is it sort of totally in a in, in a world of its own?
2: Yeah, I mean, it is kind of a different planet in a all- It is just so far upstream. It's um, you know, it's an incredible place. But yeah, I, I used to um, take. Uh, retail clients around a variety of stores um in greater London and I was always keen for them to experience real life as well as the kind of central London experience so as well as taking to the Harrods food hall I'll take them to the Sainsbury's in Hayes, for example just for a bit of um you know this is what real life is actually like um, but yeah I mean the renovations they put in place in the food hall I think earlier this year or late last year um, yeah, it's probably, yeah, 2019, just fantastic, you know, the, with this sort of vegetable butcher and all this type of stuff and just amazing service counters. Um, you know, what they were doing around in-store consumption with the different food, you know, restaurant counters and standalone restaurants within the store as well. And they also overhauled their um, wine and spirits department as well to great effect. So, you know, while it is um, a different level, I think a lot of my retail retailer clients were always – they always learnt something going to visit harrods food hall or selfridge's food hall um but obviously later like all department stores they are incredibly challenged at the moment you know tourism will return to some level once the vaccination sort of process has, has been gone through and you know for any international visitor you know harrods generally is in the top 10 list of places you need to visit when you're when you're over here so yeah but you know nothing but respect for what what he's achieved there because yeah, again you look at other categories like luggage as a random example that's yeah, wonderfully merchandised a great array of brands and um, so on food and non-food i think it's a, a brilliant brilliant business and um yeah i think you know the diversification you've mentioned to me that you know clearance outlets or the beauty um, outlet does show that they are you know they've, they've got a few alternative ideas up their sleeve um, and i think as well it just makes sense to reduce your reliance on a single property because you know the more diversity you have within the business the more resilient it should should be in, theoretically so but no I, mean, I mentioned i bemoaned the fact that you know the joy has been taken out of food and drink retail but harrods is one of those locations where i genuinely look forward to going going to because there's always something new and exciting and surprising and it It kind of smells of food, which is something you don't get in a supermarket in the UK. It's just like such a barren, sterile experience. Whereas, yeah, um, you know, Whole Foods, Harrods, Selfridges, Planet Organic, these types of places, I think, you know, there's a reason why lots of my former retail clients were, were very interested in visiting them because they do show you what good can look like.
1: It's interesting listening to you chat that through, and I, I totally agree, Brian. It's uh, some of those changes that have happened there. Uh, I understand have been under the stewardship of Chris D, uh, MD, or uh, previously of Booth, and I see he's recently moved on from uh, heading up the food at Harrods. But those changes you say have had major impact in, in a positive way, and and just generally, you know, what COVID's done to retailers that rely on browsing, even this super wealthy. It's part of that theatre store atmospherics as as you're saying there you know everything from the the temperature the music the the smell it all needs to be right when you're spending that sort of level of cash even if it's the more expensive meat through to through to luggage and yeah the 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 need to diversify interesting as they're doing into pop-up shops clearance outlets and, and and beauty actually and as we've spoken about on the show a few times before that challenging category of beauty which is all about touching trying.
0: Nora what's your second pick for us?
1: Uh, My second pick this week is also from The Times and it's home bakers snap up ginger stocks amid global shortage. Um, And I was really intrigued by this because we've heard so much, haven't we, over the last 10 months that we're all baking and even a bit like we were chatting about the Waitrose report, we're still cooking, we're still Loving uh, being in our kitchens and um, there's been a bit of a perfect storm the article talks about about ginger Tesco, Sainsbury's M&S and Ocado have all run out of fresh ginger and it's a, a, a challenge on a couple of fronts one as we've alluded to that we're all baking and we're time of the year we're all making gingerbread houses and um, and gingerbread men I say we, we all I'm not but apparently people are uh, <laughs> I've got a and buying a two pack for 99p but other people apparently <laughs> um, and there's also delete ports uh, obviously this is an imported product and again we've spoken about this on the show and there's been quite a lot of heavy uh, press coverage over the the last week about still docks like Felix Stowe uh, being backed up because of PPE and product being sat on containers both on the water and at the dock waiting to get collected and this is another example of a, of a product that, that's been impacted by this so it's um, it's heavy consumption time of year and also logistics and then add, add on to that um, China in particular have had a poor harvest of, uh, of ginger uh, and uh, uh, labour shortages too so the article talks about um the containers being worth double what they were last year and uh, it, there's also a quote in there so you can make a killing if you can get hold of fresh ginger at the moment and i guess that what the other one of the reasons i picked it is we are getting so close to the end of december now and a transition period and at time of recording we don't know if there's a, a deal with the eu uh, which could change the way that we get food the cost of food and we've been in this sort of fortunate position for so long that it's just there on the supermarket shelf and this is a small example of something that that's not at the moment and I'm guessing you know Brian how do you think consumers will change and evolve as you know we've been used to it and we've had that luxury and do you think consumers will I don't know pay more for food potentially but we're riding into a recession or will we waste less what do you think our relationship will be with grocery and food going forwards?
2: There's a little part of me which hopes that if there are shortages or problems with EU imports or imports in general, is that we might actually return to some sense of seasonality. Um, Showing my age here, but I remember when I was a kid, you pretty much had strawberries once a year, you had tomatoes once a year, you had new potatoes once a year because that's when they were available. And since that time, we've the expectation of permanent global summertime means that we expect strawberries all year round or tomatoes all year round and for me not only are a lot of these products actually quite disappointing because they are grown in you know odd circumstances or you know they're just not great strawberries they're not great tomatoes um and I, yeah a little bit of me, a little bit of me does hope that you know we start remembering that, that that a lot of what we eat is seasonal and can be seasonal and can be local um, and that we should, we don't really have a right, I don't think, to demand these products all year round because that's not how it should work or could work. I don't think that's probably quite an unpopular opinion, but it would be nice to have a greater sense of seasonality and, and local local sourcing. And the ginger thing is fascinating because I think there was also a kind of a old wives' tale doing the rounds early on during COVID that ginger was actually a really good defence against infection which might actually might be true for all of um, So yeah, we, we were shifting all sorts of it. Then it disappeared for a few weeks and then it came back. But what also interested me is the fact that you can actually buy ginger in many, many places in the shop, be that um, puree or frozen or in a jar in the herbs and spices, dried and powdered, obviously. Um, but yeah, it does. it does really highlight the fact that despite all of the huge advances in growing and procurement and logistics the food supply chain is is inherently quite fragile um and yeah i think as a nation we have to start kind of taken it for granted a little bit and we do expect all of the products all of the time um and yeah a little part of my kind of luddite um old-fashioned point of view would be a little bit of seasonality coming back would actually be quite a good thing
0: Brian, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. We've loved it. That's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to the articles we discussed in the show notes at thepicklist.co.uk. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe, give it a rating and leave a review. It makes a massive difference to our podcast and helps us reach more people in the food industry who'd enjoy listening to The Picklist. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.